Welcome to What the Midwife Said, the podcast that's all about how babies and families are made. My name's Leah Hazard. I'm a mother, author of the best-selling memoir Hard Pushed, and I'm the midwife, in case you were wondering. In this series, I'm having honest conversations with some incredible guests, taking a deep dive headfirst into their experiences of fertility, pregnancy, birth, and parenting. That sheer being in your mind and in your body and in a horrible place, and then once, one second it's just done. Yeah, and right before it's done, you really want to poo yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's so grim. It sounds like... Like, like a version of Wonder Woman lightning crotch. I quite like the idea of that. Perhaps that's my alter ego. Oh, I'm so ready. I'm going to be a woman. I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> and Jamie's like, calm down. I'm like, no, but I'm ready. My mummy said to me when I said no, she went, look, lol, if they are offering you this, it means I think you're going to live and it means I think you've got a future. Yeah, you think, how am I going to squeeze out a whole <laughs> other organism from that small place? The first time round, it was... I was saying to the midwife, hey, I feel like I need to push, I need to push, something's just, you know, and uh, it was a lot of, no, don't push, you're going to reverse everything, stop pushing, stop, literally shouting at me. I've walked out onto stage in front of thousands of people, I've, you know, I've done all sorts of crazy stuff, and my thing before I do anything scary is, you've grown two humans in your body, nothing scarier than that. We're exploring the way we see our bodies and our relationships the choices we make as we build our families, and the highs and lows that those choices can bring. No judgment, no shame, just what the midwife said. And I want you to join the conversation too. If you have any questions, or you'd like to share your experiences, you can find me on social media, at Leah Hazard on Instagram, or at Hazard underscore Leah on Twitter. Just include the hashtag, what the midwife said. Today's guest is a very special member of the NHS family. Dr. Anita Mitra is an obstetrician and gynaecologist, and her GynaGeek accounts on social media have allowed thousands of followers to join her virtually in the labour ward, in outpatient clinics, and even in the gym where she can deadlift like a superstar. I did really want to put information out there to show, look, look, I'm still at work. I'm still doing most of the things that I would normally do. We're, we're, you know, we're still here, just putting that message out to people. There are quite a lot of people who, for example, would not accept um, a, a forceps delivery. And that's important that we discuss that early on, you know, not at the point where I'm kind of pooping my pants because the baby's heart rate is, you know, on the floor, which does happen. She's also written a book, Gyne Geek, your no-nonsense guide to down there healthcare, and she's passionate about destigmatizing women's health. Anita, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Leah. Oh, I'm so excited. We're both excited. And we've never actually spoken until now. Uh, but like many people, obviously, I kind of feel like I sort of know you after following you on <laughs> yeah, Instagram. <I> <laughs> Um, and lots of people listening probably will have followed you as well and followed your stories where you kind of talk about lots of bits of gynae health and give us a little insight into your working life. And that's sort of how we quote unquote met, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I feel like we know each other through our Insta stories more than anything. <laughs> and we're kind of like posting and reposting each other when we're on nights and things. And it's so funny how our shifts always seem to sync up. <laughs> I know, it's so good, but it's such a nice little boost and you go, oh, somebody else is doing it too. It's not just me. And it's such a nice part of um, sort of the NHS, isn't it? Is that even if you just know that somebody else is out there doing a night shift somewhere else in the country, it feels like one big family kind of, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. Because I I really do think that working shifts and particularly night shifts is quite isolating. Because um, often, you know, you don't really see your family or your friends for many days. And you just kind of feel like you're just constantly either in bed or at work. And so it's nice to yeah just feel that someone else is kind of sharing the burden as well. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. And I love to check when I'm sort of, if I get a tea break around one or two or something in the morning and I see like, who's actually watched this story and it's maybe just student midwives or midwives or maybe feeding mums who are up in the night. But it's great to know yeah. that there's this night world as well as the day world. I've also noticed that quite a lot of my friends seem to be insomniacs because I'm like, what? Why have you seen this story? Go to bed. <laughs> oh, it's lockdown life though, isn't it? Just nobody is sleeping. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 
Yeah. So is this a day off for you then? Please tell me you're not working tonight as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a day off for me. Um, so I get a week off after I've done um, my weekend nights. Um, so this is when I do all my kind of like, as I call it, fun work, even though I obviously love my actual job. Um, yeah, this is when I do all my other bits and bobs, like my research and my social media stuff. Well, only you would describe your research as your fun work. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you do for kicks. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty sad, isn't it? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, to be honest, I spent most of yesterday researching the uterus, so that's I'm I'm right there with you. Um, so so what are you? What are some of your kind of main side hustles at the minute? Then what are you looking into? Yeah, so I did a PhD a few years ago, um, and so just as a little bit of background, I actually did a science degree before I became a doctor, um, which is something that quite a lot of people do. Um, but I also worked in a research lab, um, and then when I was at medical school, I worked for a kidney transplant surgeon because I never thought I wanted to do obs and gynae. Um, so I've always done research, and then obviously, you know, I saw the light and realised that obs and gynae was where it was at. Um, but uh, yeah, I've always kind of continued working in science, and then when I did my PhD, I did a lot of research about the vaginal microbiome, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like a trendy topic right now, but it definitely wasn't when I first started it. Um, I didn't I didn't really know what the term meant. So it's the term that we use to um, refer to all the bacteria in the vagina. Um, and it's really important when it comes to um, health and disease in the um, female genital tract. Uh, so yeah, that's what I do my research on. That is fascinating to me. And in a weird sort of overlapping Venn diagram of our quirky niche interests, I got lost down this internet rabbit hole yesterday, (laughs) looking at kind of tonics and bags and pearls for uterine health and Mm. or or health in quotes, and um, so-called improving the microbiome and detoxing things down there, which as we all know is not necessary because your vagina is a self-cleaning oven, thank you very much. And I got lost in this world of like um, these little sort of herb-filled bags Mm. and this thing called a vagilixer, which is like some kind of luminous pink potion. Mm. I mean, I can only imagine your your response to these things. I mean, my blood pressure's through the roof right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was fuming. I couldn't believe some of this stuff even existed. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So just going back to what you said about the vagina being a self-cleaning oven, well, that's totally correct. And it's actually the bacteria that helps to clean it. So you know how you can get all these kind of like acid toners um, and cleansers and things for your face? Um, so the same thing happens in the vagina. So the bacteria makes lots of kind of acid products and lots of different proteins and peptides, and they help to kind of like slough off the old um, cells and and also just help to keep everything at bay because what they do is they stop any kind of bacteria that we don't want in the vagina from growing. So when you do all these kind of things, like putting all these lotions and potions and stuff, it, you can actually disturb the, the good bacteria. And if, if you, you know, the term, if it's, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. It's so true when it comes to your vagina, because when you, if you don't have any symptoms, just leave it well alone. And if you do, you actually really need to go and see a doctor because there's lots of reasons for why you might be having, for example, itching, irritation, discharge, um, irregular bleeding, all these kind of things. These are what we call red flags. But unfortunately, the vagina has become quite sexy in the whole like wellness industry world. And I think that they really do play on a lot of insecurities. But I think also one of the problems is that as healthcare professionals, and particularly as doctors and gynecologists, we maybe haven't always been very good at really opening up the dialogue and really exploring what our patients' concerns actually are, because there's a lot of people who unfortunately have had really horrible experiences with doctors um, and haven't felt that their symptoms have been adequately addressed and treated and so they become understandably quite desperate and then start to look for other solutions and and that's where the wellness industry I think maybe isn't being very helpful. Yeah definitely I feel like a lot of these products are well first and foremost obviously trying to make money but also capitalizing on women's insecurities which as Mm. you say maybe have been trivialized or minimized and I mean, I was looking at these products and scrolling through and, you know, once you click on one, you get led to another until you end up at this completely obscure place. And I found this thing that I think a woman in Florida was selling and it was called, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Coochie Wawa. 
and it was this <laughs> this bottle of like bright pink kind of lotion that it was saying that you should use externally and kind of inside and as you say my blood pressure was escalating at this point and my initial response was that I mean what a complete charlatan this is doing so much more harm than good and I'm guessing this won't be available on prescription uh, through the NHS but when you kind of step back a bit you think okay well people are obviously buying these things because there's a market Mm. for them because they're worried about their reproductive health they think either it's abnormal or smelly or unhealthy and people are turning to these things because maybe there's a lack somewhere else yeah definitely and I think that's the problem isn't it that there is maybe a lack of um you know really kind of the way we address these problems with women and and the lack of solutions um and so I think that it's really difficult because yeah you want people to feel that they can go to the doctor because sometimes these um symptoms that people get can be a sign of something really quite sinister um but you know I I, yeah I just think the wellness industry has really it's starting to take women for a bit of a ride and it's a real shame yeah it's a huge shame and I think at the moment as well everybody is feeling so vulnerable because of just what's Mm. going on in the world and when that translates to somebody who's worried about their sexual health or is pregnant, I mean, I, I found in my own work that virtually every woman coming through the door is in a heightened state of anxiety. Are, are you are you finding that as well? Yeah, definitely. Much more anxious because they're maybe not getting all the interactions that they would with healthcare professionals. But also, I've just noticed a lot of people sort of feeling guilty for coming to see us for something that is entirely appropriate um you know we're still we're still working we're still here and we still want to help people and I am a bit worried that people are not consulting us for things that are actually really important because they think that we're too busy doing something else and I would say particularly in the obstetrics and gynecology world you know during the the pandemic of course we've still pretty much been as fully staffed as we normally would. Most of our doctors, thankfully, so far in the hospitals where I've worked, haven't been taken away to other departments because of the fact that a lot of what we do is, um, I wouldn't say sort of an emergency service, but, you know, it's something that it continues whether there's a pandemic or not. Having babies continues, having, um, unfortunately, you know, miscarriages, having ectopic pregnancies, having ovarian cysts, which cause problems, all these things still happen. Of course, there are lots of services that we haven't been able to run. You know, for example, our elective surgeries. So I know, for example, there's a lot of people with, for example, endometriosis, fibroids, really awful periods that they need help with who haven't been able to get the solutions that they would like to um, during that time. And that's really difficult. But when it comes to all the kind of emergency things, and particularly when it comes to pregnancy, we are still doing our absolute best to to provide all those services. And I, I would hate for anybody to feel guilty for needing to come and see us. Do you find that women are then presenting with things at a much later, more acute stage then? So for example, if somebody maybe in normal pre-COVID time would have come in mm. after a few months of um, maybe mid-cycle spotting or concerns in their pregnancy that they're then now leaving it until it's become really problematic? Yeah, definitely. I would say anecdotally, um, I have prescribed so many more blood transfusions for women who are having really heavy periods, um, mm-hmm. who probably before would have you know, spoken to their GP, sought help beforehand and, and had some kind of medication because there's lots of medicines that we can use to reduce the amount of bleeding. We can also, you know, make sure we're supplementing people with iron, for example, lots of things that we can do that can try and avoid the need for transfusion. And so, yeah, that's definitely something that I've really noticed. And and that's really traumatic as well when you're at the stage where, you know, you've been bleeding so heavily that mm. you've become so terribly anemic that we need to give you a blood transfusion. So that's definitely one of the things that stood out um, for me, for sure. That's fascinating. I mean, we read in the news and we think a lot about all the sort of secondary side effects of COVID and the pandemic in general. And we look at other health outcomes, maybe sort of bigger, more obvious ones like um, stillbirth or preterm delivery. Mm. But then to actually think that one of the kind of secondary consequences is women bleeding out Mm. silently and quietly until it gets to a really acute stage, that's quite shocking, isn't it? Absolutely. And and I 
have had so many messages from people on social media and it's really difficult because I obviously I'm not insured or protected in any way to give information one-on-one via social media and and I just get so many messages that unfortunately I don't have time but the number of people who said can I just please ask you this question because I I don't want to bother my doctor Um, and it just makes me really concerned that all these people are sat at home with all the anxiety related to the pandemic, but then also anxiety related to a healthcare problem on top of that. It's really, really difficult. And so, you know, particularly during the first lockdown, it was such a difficult time because I didn't want to present myself as this kind of like COVID hero, you know, um, making it like, oh my gosh, I'm saving the world. But I did really want to put information out there to show, look, look, I'm still at work. I'm still doing most of the things that I would normally do. We're, we're, you know, we're still here, just putting that message out to people. Um, and I do try and um, kind of use the questions that people ask me to shape the kind of content that I do put out to, you know, try and sort of educate and inform people. But yeah, it's so difficult because I just, I, it really breaks my heart when I see how much people must be struggling. It is heartbreaking because we've been speaking in this series with other guests about a lot of women's issues and issues of motherhood and sexuality is kind of hiding in plain sight. Um, and and I really feel that, and you obviously do as well, that so many women out there are struggling with um, clinical things and with emotional mm. things. And it's it's all around us, but we're not really dealing with it. We're not vocalising yeah. it or we're not maybe managing it in the right way. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because just even in general, when we're not um, in this horrible pandemic situation, I often find when people come to um, the gynae clinic, they'll sit down and, you know, they often look a bit nervous, which I totally understand because, you know, it's an appointment they've probably been waiting for for months. And you want to get all this information out there. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't really feel that comfortable with talking about their vaginas, about periods, you know, all these kind of taboo topics. It doesn't trip off everyone's tongue like it does ours. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. what I often notice is that people leave feeling much lighter. Mm-hmm. Even the people who I haven't, for example, said, look, this is the medication that we're going to use. This is the operation we're going to do. For a lot of people, even just kind of having that conversation and having some reassurance from somebody who is medically trained can actually be so therapeutic mm-hmm. and, and people aren't able to have those kind of interactions and and those um, kind of conversations and and unfortunately people are just googling so much more and you know Dr. Google really needs to be struck off the medical register because he just tells everyone that they've got cancer mm-hmm. or <laughs> so, that their baby's dead. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And you can understand because if you're sitting at home and you're in lockdown or you're quite isolated um, and you're just glued to your phone all day, I mean, I'm really trying not to, but let's face it, I am. um, You know, that is going to be the first place that that most women will turn to, even women Mm. who think of themselves as being quite educated and informed. But those first few search results that come up are not always going to be accurate in fact most times they're not and you know in in my work I work in triage and a lot of what we do in addition to seeing women face to face is telephone triage Mm. and the number of women that phone in and I think increasingly now um who have felt maybe maybe their babies had hiccups or they felt some changed fetal movement and they've googled Mm -hmm. something and it says their baby's having seizures or you know they've got a mild headache and all of a sudden it's preeclampsia and it's it's I, I feel in the last few months that has just escalated. Mm. And have you noticed more people buying home Dopplers and things to monitor oh, the babies? Completely, yeah. completely. And just for anyone listening who doesn't know, it's so dangerous. Um, and please don't. And, you know, we always say we can understand why a woman would want that reassurance of thinking that she's listening into her baby. But there's a reason why you and I have gone to school to learn to do these things, because mm. um, they're so easy to misinterpret, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And so the home Doppler is a little um, uh, heartbeat monitors. And also there's some phone apps, and I really don't understand how they work. And maybe that's me not being well informed. But basically, I know a lot of people who have bought them so they can sort of monitor the baby or, you know, check the baby if they feel that there's not so much movement. But I think that, you know, a really good analogy is that, for example, if you find somebody collapsed in the street, if you went up to them and checked 
do they have a pulse? And you're like, yeah, they've got a pulse. So I'm just going to walk off now. That's kind of the same thing as, as mm-hmm. if you feel that the baby's not moving and then using a Doppler. It, it, sure, there's there's a heartbeat there, but there might be other things going on. There's lots of reasons why we want to see you. And yeah, um, as you um, pointed out, it's really easy to use them incorrectly and maybe pick up your own heartbeat, um, which if you're really nervous and your pulse is running really fast, then yes, it can definitely be the same as a baby's. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's not a good idea. Just please do come and see us. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. And and I feel like in addition to that general isolation that everybody's feeling just now, do, do you think that um, staff in the maternity services from midwives to doctors maybe have a little bit of an image problem at the minute? Because and, and I'll kind of unpick that a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's quite rightly been a lot of talk in the media lately about women having to go through certain key points of pregnancy and birth on their own, right, mm-hmm. without their partners because of mm-hmm. the visiting restrictions around COVID. Um, and we understand why that is, because the restrictions are there ostensibly to keep women and staff safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a sense, I feel like there's almost been an increasing portrayal of us as kind of gatekeepers or unfeeling. And there hasn't been much of a, a public response from midwives and doctors, maybe for fear of recrimination, I, I mm. don't know, or maybe just because we're all so busy. Um, do, do you feel that a little bit, that there's also maybe this increasing sense of us as having to enforce rules that mm. are in some way insensitive or punishing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I found it really hard to be honest with you about the whole birth partners discussion. And I think it's a really important um, uh, factor when it comes to someone's labor. You want to be there and you want to be supported by someone who you um, you know and who loves you. Um, and of course, we have had to restrict the number of birth partners. So, I mean, certainly in the units where I've worked, we normally allow two. And at the moment, we are allowing one. Um, and that's really difficult because we have to do it for a reason. And obviously, you know, we can only have a certain number of people in the labor ward. And it's really difficult because, for example, people are going to the pub. Well, they're not at the moment because we're in the second lockdown, but people have been, for example, going to the pub, um, hanging out in houses with groups of six before um, the lockdown started. So it's very different to what we're able to offer on the labor ward. But what I found a little bit tricky um, and yeah, it's difficult when you want to address this kind of thing sometimes on social media, for example, is uh, is the sort of language around it. And so a lot of people understandably very upset, but some people, you know, saying that there's evidence to show that women are safer if they have a birth partner. And I find that word really difficult mm, because it and why implies, is that? So just unpick that. Yeah. So it, it just kind of implies that we are there to harm people. And we're going to do things that are unsafe or we're going to, you know, do something that the woman doesn't um, doesn't give consent to. Um, It's really difficult. And then I think it just makes this kind of slightly uneasy. I don't know what the word is. It makes it seem like it's like us against you. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of antagonistic in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And, And, you know, I I think over the last few years, certainly using social media has really opened my eyes to what a hospital or birthing experience is really like for a woman because you know people don't come up to me who you know who are my patients and say look I really didn't like the way that you said that to me um I I don't like the way that I feel in this situation that's really difficult to do and it seems very confrontational but when you read on social media the way that people have perceived things that we maybe say very casually in hospital, I've developed a really, really huge understanding for what it's like being on the other side. Uh, And so I really do make sure that I'm quite careful with the language that I use and also the way that I present information to women. And I think it's just so, so important that we, you know, for example, emphasize the fact that we're there to keep people safe. Uh, And that's often one of my sort of opening lines is that, you know, I'm here to keep you and your baby safe. Um, And that doesn't mean that I'm going to do something without your consent. And it's very much a two way conversation. And, and, you know, we have to discuss things. I want to make sure that you're informed and you understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, the word safety there in that 
discussion with birth partners just yeah makes me feel really uncomfortable and makes me feel that I have to impress the people more and more that I'm not there to do anything they don't want and anything that's unsafe mm-hmm. you, you kind of feel as if you're almost already having to be on the defensive because there's this yeah. impression of us maybe not for everybody but but maybe from some people that that we're not on the same team yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think it's quite difficult as well, because I I completely understand that, you know, childbirth is something that's very normal and natural for the body. But there can be times when it maybe doesn't end up being natural in the way that, you, ha- you know, there's a need um, to perform a medical intervention for the safety of the mum or the baby. Uh, and I understand that, you know, for some people, they just really don't want to see my face in the room. <laughs> uh, because often there's this kind of connotation that, oh, the doctor's just there to to cut you or to pull the baby out or whatever. And, and you know, to be quite frank with you, I have no benefit from doing any of those things unless it's for safety. It, it doesn't make my life any easier. You know, I'd often rather be sitting, drinking a cup of coffee than you know, intervening in what someone wants to be a normal and natural labour. And I think that's sort of important to, to mention because it's quite difficult when you can see that, for example, a baby is in distress and there's sort of a, I don't want a doctor in the room kind of a vibe going on because it makes me feel quite guilty. But mm-hmm. you often have a short amount of time to intervene, you know, to um, end up with a, a safe a safe delivery and I think that's quite difficult because I think a lot of it also is re- related to the kind of education that we give people before they go into labour mm-hmm. um, as to maybe why why we're there sometimes. Yeah and it's it's difficult to prepare people as well isn't it for those eventualities because of course we all want to think um, and as midwives we we hope and as doctors we hope that everyone will have uh, a straightforward experience but it's difficult to prepare people for those eventualities in a way that is empowering. Yeah definitely definitely and I think also you know some people say, oh, you know, don't scare people unnecessarily. But it's a really fine line, isn't there, between scaring someone and making sure that they're adequately informed. Yes, it really is. And I, I used to really find that I, I was in a job for a while where I was teaching parent craft antenatal classes. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be the one that teaches the best class ever. You know, my my women are going to be the best prepared women ever. And I'm going to be really honest and frank and empowering and positive. And like three classes in, I was like, oh, how do you do this? It really is the ultimate challenge, isn't it? Because mm. you're trying to prepare somebody for um, a really formative event, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mm. you name it. And yet, you know, for, for many people... It is a positive experience, but for many, they come out of it battered and bruised and, yeah. and a wee bit broken. And that's unfortunately yeah. the reality. It's, it's so hard to get people ready for that. It is so hard, isn't it? Because So I did um, I did some Insta stories uh, the other week when I was on call and I was just explaining you know, at five o'clock, I was taking over on labor ward. So what we normally go and do is just go and sort of introduce ourselves to all the patients. Um, and the reason that we do this is so we can see what's going on. And often we're just checking the the um, heart rate tracings um, and making sure that the midwives are happy with the plans and what's going on. Um, and also important to emphasize at this point that I only practice, you know, high risk obstetrics. So I don't work on any kind of midwife led unit. I am mainly looking after people who are, you know, they need continuous monitoring for some reason there's potentially a complication in the pregnancy they may be having an induction um and also if you have an epidural then you need to be on labor ward as well so we can monitor the baby uh, and so because it's sort of and again high risk can sound quite scary but there's always a potential you know in a small proportion of people that I might need to step in and intervene. And I think if the first time you're meeting me is when I'm standing over you, there's maybe five, six, seven people in the room swarming over you and there's lots of noise it would be even scarier if the first time you've met me you don't know who I am you don't know if I know what I'm doing is when I'm saying look we really need to get this baby out now Mm -hmm. but somebody said I really don't like it when the doctor comes into the room I think it's really disturbing for the woman Uh, and it's really interesting to to understand that uh, point of view but I think it's also important that 
to explain why we actually do it. Um, and the other thing is that I, when I'm meeting people on Labour Board for the first time, often do just kind of mention that, you know, we're here, we're watching from afar, we're all here to keep you safe. Um, but just to let you know that whilst I'm happy that everything's progressing nicely and normally, there is a potential that at some point you might meet me again because we might need to deliver baby quickly if there's an emergency and that may be an instrumental delivery or a cesarean section. And it's very difficult because I don't want to present it as if that's what I'm already thinking, that's what I'm planning. Mm. But you're just kind of sowing the seed just in case. Absolutely, because can you imagine? So so many people are quite shocked when I say that because they're like, oh, I didn't realise that I might need a cesarean section now or, um, you know, because I'm in labour on my own or Mm -hmm. that, you know, instrumental delivery would be um, an option. So some people have never heard of instrumental delivery, which it just blows my mind. And and Mm -hmm. I think that... So you mean like a forceps or a bantus? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so... I think it's really important to to mention that because how scary would it be if you've never heard of this intervention and mm-hmm. m- you know moments before you're about to uh, to have this done and it's important that we discuss you know risks and benefits and I'll I'll talk as much or as little as as the the patient would like me to um, but I think it's important to just make people aware because often when people have had a very traumatic experience when you actually dig deeper into it, and this is something I do a lot in antenatal clinic when someone comes and, for example, requests a cesarean section because their last delivery was traumatic, I don't just go, oh, yeah, cool, that's fine, I'll pop you in the diary. I say, you know, would it be okay if we talk about why it was so that I can try and improve things this time, for example? And often it's because they had this kind of unexpected thing that they didn't think was ever going to happen to them and, you know, I think that instrumental delivery often really terrifies people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's quite a scary thing. I absolutely. mean, you know, for forceps, the, the idea that somebody's going to put two big salad spoons in you and pull your baby out. I mean, let's face it, it's not a walk in the park. Absolutely. And so yeah. I think that it's important um, to be able to have that conversation with people. And also, there are quite a lot of people who, for example, would not accept um, a, a forceps delivery. And that's important that we discuss that um, early on you know not at the point where I'm kind of pooping my pants because the baby's heart rate is you know on the floor which does happen yes listeners we do do that (laughs) that's another thing to say you know um I all my my colleagues actually say to me they're like gosh Anita she's so calm all the time I didn't really realize there was a big emergency or whatever And, and I can look very calm but you know sometimes I am absolutely terrified thinking oh my gosh, is this baby going to be okay? And and people might be a bit shocked at hearing that and might think, oh, that sounds a bit scary if the doctor poops her pants too. But, but you know, we really, we really do care a lot. And it really matters to me that everybody is safe. It, it's just yeah. the it worst is the thing, thing it is, is the, when you have... thing that we go to work for, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's really interesting because I, sometimes I feel a bit guilty feeling scared or, or feeling sad for something that happened because it's not my it's not my baby. It's not my birth experience. It's not my body. But I do. And, and you know, I'm sure all of us who work on labor ward, for example, can all think of, you know, really sad cases that have happened, really awful outcomes um, that that did happen. And and we really do hold it inside for a long, long time. And it often can colour our practice because, you know, for example, I know people who, you know, don't like using syntocinon in particular scenarios, not because it's against the guidelines, but because they've had an awful outcome um, with in a particular um, patient for example and so we really do we really do carry it with us and it's it's awful from our point of view when when we do have something that doesn't quite go to plan. It is awful but I think that people can take heart from the fact that we feel these things and I think a certain degree of humanity is not only acceptable in a caregiver but but good because the day that you go through a loss or a really horrible experience and you feel nothing is mm. the day when you really have to take a step back, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. 
And it's interesting because actually um, on Monday morning, I had a lady who needed a cesarean section and I absolutely hate emergencies at the end of the night shift. I get so much adrenaline. I feel so terribly sick. And it's such a, yeah, there's just so much responsibility that comes with with any kind of intervention. And I thought, gosh, I'm so tired. This is going to be awful. And then thankfully, the day team came a little bit early. And so I said to the the registrar who's taking over the day, I said, would you mind doing the cesarean section? Because, you know, I think that's much more appropriate because you're much more awake. And he was very, very happy to do so. Um, But I had to wait until that baby had been delivered till I could go home. I stood in the back of the theatre and I waited and I watched and I made sure that the mum was okay. I had a little chat with her afterwards, made sure that the baby's gases were okay. Because I knew that if I didn't do that, of course, my colleague can text me and tell me what happened, but I just needed to see it for myself so that I could just go home and, and rest a little bit easier. I think it's really important for people to hear that, Anita, because I think it's very easy for people to look at um, doctors and midwives on social media and go, oh, yeah, they've totally got it all together and they're always really calm and they've done this a million times. But to know that we do go home and we think about certain people and we do carry these things with us is, is yeah. a really important point, point to make. Absolutely. Um, so my husband's an Obzingani registrar as well. And we talk about cases quite a lot, actually, which some people might find <laughs> a bit weird that we talk about it at dinner. But it's really interesting because it, it's, it's interesting to see how we are affected by things in a different way. Um, and so obviously, you know, we both care a lot, but there's different things that affect us. And it's really interesting. So, you know, there's certain situations that make him feel really sad or make him feel not uncomfortable isn't quite the right word but you know you know you know, mm-hmm. really have an impact on him um that I think oh that, that's interesting and so it is really interesting to sort of discuss with with colleagues and and just learn and see what what really kind of affects different people differently but and you know somebody once said to me said how can you do your job if you're that affected but as you said the moment that you you stop caring I think is really difficult because it is actually such a caring specialty I mean all branches of medicine are caring aren't they but you just form these connections with these families and it, it just really really does impact the way you think about life I think in general it really does and we're so lucky to be in that profession but also the flip side of that when things don't go well is of course that stays with you and it, it takes yeah, its toll um, absolutely and, and you know there's so many patients that I just you know They've probably forgotten about me, but, you know, I have such clear, vivid memories of the kind of interactions that that we have and that we've had in the past. And, and, you know, it's just amazing that you can have such an impact on on someone, but they can have such an impact on you. Uh, And so I had a a patient a few weeks ago um, who had... um, I'd operated on um, as an emergency operation um, and I had spent basically the whole day with her. And, you know, I just... I felt so bad for her. I just thought, gosh, this is such an awful situation to be in. And um, she said, oh, could you call my husband afterwards? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Gosh, that's the absolute least I can do because it was really late in the evening. And so I called him and he was just so grateful. And I thought, well, all I've done is picked up the phone and you know, had a 60 minute, uh, 60 second conversation with you to say that she's fine. And she just sent me the kindest card I've ever received. And honestly, I just cried when I read it because it wasn't anything to me that I'd, you know, spoken to her husband and I went to see her the next morning. But it was just so moving to to feel that actually maybe I'd really impacted on what was probably the worst day of her life. She was clearly in a really kind of vulnerable, impressionable state though. And I think women are when they're going through our service I think even the smallest things we say can stay with them for life Um, and it's important for us to recognize that and and like you say I mean sometimes I'm at work and I'm having an interaction which to me I think you know it's brief it's one of many in my day might be a quick phone call about um, fetal movements or bleeding or something and then the, the woman you know doesn't happen all the time I have to say but sometimes she says thank you so much I feel so much better mm. and you you really feel like you've sort of changed the tone of somebody's whole day and it's yeah that's absolutely fantastic and I think also you know as healthcare professionals it's important to to hear 
the stories of our patients and, and how they, they felt. Because, you know, I know the word emergency surgery, it sounds very emotive. And we've all watched ER, haven't we? Because, you know, come on, George Clooney. I might have done. But, <laughs> you know, emergency surgery isn't always like alarm bells ringing and blood flying everywhere and whatnot. It just means it's an unplanned surgery. Um, and so, for example, the, the operation that I did wasn't anything that was particularly challenging or difficult. It's pretty much bread and butter for a gynecologist. Um, but it's really important to remember that just because for us it was quite a routine thing and it was uncomplicated, it was simple, it's really not for that person. And I've noticed that's something that people, my colleagues seem to forget. And I feel bad because I feel like now I'm saying bad things about my colleagues. But it's just, you know, for example, I was talking to someone yesterday about how we, we use the word just. And I really kick myself for using it a lot because, you know, for example, we get a lot of patients in the gynae clinic who um, may be, you know, may have benefit from having a hysterectomy, so having the womb removed. And often I've heard colleagues say, you know, we could just do a hysterectomy. And sure, for us, it's just mm. a hysterectomy because, you know, maybe we've done thousands in our life and, you know, it's a very common operation. But for that woman, actually, that signifies so much more it you know for a lot of people even though they have the most terrible symptoms terrible periods the idea of having their womb removed is going to completely change their identity you know it's a complete for a lot of people a loss of femininity it's you know maybe just three or four tiny cuts on your abdomen because we can do it through keyhole often but actually it's a major operation and the idea of even having any kind of operation for some people is absolutely terrifying we do tend to kind of trivialize these things, not always intentionally. I mean, I, I write in the book that I wrote hard pushed about the fact that we use this word we, because I'm up in Scotland all the time, like just a wee jab or just a wee gentle examination or just going to make a wee cut. And it's hardly we to that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but And we don't do it with any sense of malice or, you know, we don't mean to trivialize. But as you say, it's just because it's such a routine part of our work. Um and maybe because we're trying to be kind and make it not yeah. seem as scary, uh, but it, it doesn't always come out that way. Yeah, and exactly. That that leads me actually to a question which I'm I'm kind of going to ask just to kind of turn things on their head a little bit and just for fun mm-hmm. um, about a wee question about a wee birth. So um, obviously in, in my time, I've had the pleasure of working with lots of amazing doctors uh, in the labour ward and triage and all kinds of different areas. And I I love asking the ones who haven't had children yet about what their ideal birth would be. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not going to ask you the dreaded, when are you having a baby question, because that's just not cool. We don't need to go there. But Anita, usually when I ask doctors this question, it goes one of two ways. Mm -hmm. So either they say, oh, I'm going to have a water birth at home with whale song and hypnobirthing and I'll breathe my baby out. Or in fact, (laughs) I've met quite a few lady doctors who say, well, it's going to be an elective section under general anesthetic at 39 weeks. Um, It's kind of like they've definitely got very strong views when were the other. other. And so I'm not going to ask you when you're going to have a baby, but what, which camp do you think you fall into? Are you somewhere in the middle or have you got any thoughts? Oh, what about surrogacy? Well, there's that. <laughs> there's that. <laughs> no. Okay. So uh, people might not like my opinion, but I actually have seen the extreme sides of birth and I'm a little bit scared, to be quite honest with you. And I'm also a massive control freak. Um, also, my husband has a huge head. So I would go down the elective cesarean section route. I've already chosen my surgeons. Of course you have. <laughs> I love it. You've got it all planned out. Yeah, I know. I think um, I, I just really, you know, the last 10 years of working in Obzangani have just really opened my eyes and made me realise that people want very different things in life and in birth. Some people wouldn't want a doctor near them, want to have their baby at home, totally respect that. But I want everything. Give me all the medicines, give me all the doctors in the hospital, in the room, I'll have it all. (laughs) I think that's fair enough. I think that's what we call making an informed choice. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I, I find it really hard when, 
you hear about people being forced to have a vaginal delivery if they don't want one. Um, I watched a re- not watched, listened to a really shocking episode of Women's Hour a few years ago about um, delivery after having a cesarean section. So I'm sure all your listeners are very well informed and know that after having a cesarean section, generally speaking, most people um, are able to try for a normal delivery and a lot of people will be successful. So about three out of four. But not everyone wants to. And in some places, I've heard that it's not even an option to have a cesarean section, a planned cesarean section. You have to try and have a vaginal delivery. And I was absolutely horrified. I just... I just think it's really terrible. You know, I can't force people to take a certain medication or, you know, for example, I can't force people to have a hysterectomy if I suggest that to them. So Mm -hmm. why should we have to force people to have a delivery that they don't want to? Yeah, which is a pretty huge fundamental thing to be made to push a baby out your vagina when that's actually not what you wanted. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, not... it's really crazy. Really interesting, though, because there's actually a study that was published. Um, it was a survey that some obs and gynae trainees had done. Um, and oh, I can't remember where it's published now. I think it might be in BJOG, so British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And they asked people about their um, either what kind of delivery they had or their plans for delivery. And I think it was quite 50-50, if I remember correctly. I'll have to dig it out and send it over to you. It's really interesting. That would be fascinating. But I have to say, in my admittedly limited um, anecdotal surveys of doctors in my work, I think your opinion is not unusual. Your birth plan to have a just <laughs> knock me out, put me to sleep, get the baby out. Um, and a lot of people might think coming from a midwife, I might be shocked by that kind of plan. But I'm not at all because you guys, you as you say, you do see the extremes and you you probably see things going wrong more often than they go right oh, just, just just because of the nature of of what your role is i think that's yeah, totally absolutely. understandable that, that that's going to kind of color your preference and your experience so although i'm very disappointed that i won't at some point be able to rush down to london and deliver you anita i can <laughs> i can do, totally understand well, you never know maybe <laughs> i'll just wake up and i'll be fully dilated and then well well, strange situation, but I'm not sure you'll make it down from <laughs> Scotland in time, Leah. <laughs> I might not. I might not. You'd need to give me a bit of a lead time, I think. Um, which leads me actually to I think what will be my final question because let's face it, we could go on for literally days, but I'm aware that you have probably other things to do. Um, so obviously the name of this podcast is What the Midwife Said. And that's just a little nod to the fact that um, what we say to the women in our care really matters and language matters. And we remember these things. Um, and we've touched on that a little bit already as well. Mm. So can you, just to finish off, remember something that a midwife or maybe another doctor or colleague has said to you at some point in your career that's really, really stayed with you, for good or for bad? Can you think of even something somebody Ooh. maybe said recently? Gosh, that's a tricky one. I know, putting on the spot. Or is there a midwife, perhaps, that you really enjoy working with or... Um, or well, really don't enjoy working with? <laughs> right, what I would somebody say... Somebody stuck with you. Is that... Um, I think it's really important that we remember that it's not just somebody who's more senior than you that can help you. And there's so many times when I've been in situations where I think, oh, gosh, I'm not really sure what to do here. And I have absolutely no problem whatsoever saying to the midwife, what the heck shall I do? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think this is something that applies to healthcare in general. I think a lot of doctors... um, often think that they have to speak to their their consultant, someone more senior than them. But no, I just really believe that you can never get too big for your boots and be really humble and just speak out when you're not sure, because there's always somebody who maybe has another idea that you're too stressed to think about. Um, But yeah, it doesn't have to be somebody more senior than you. Uh, And so many midwives have, have given me such great ideas of what we could do in certain situations. Um, and finally, a huge shout out to an incredible midwife that I worked with um, over the weekend. Her name's Abby. And she was just so incredible. We had this, uh, we had an instrumental delivery. Um, the patient was COVID positive. So it was just me and her in the room. We had other people outside um, waiting in the wings in case they needed to rush in. Um, And it was a bit of a tricky delivery as well, but Abby was amazing. She was looking after the mom. When baby was born, she was looking after baby. Um, 
had a little bit of a bleed. So Abby started to give medication. She was helping me. I was being classic demanding doctor. I need more swabs. I need more um, sutures. I need this. I need that. Can you mop my brow? My mask is falling down, blah, blah, blah. Um, And she was just so amazing, so sweet, so caring to the patient, but also really caring to me and didn't make a fuss at all. And that is just amazing because it was you know, potential to be a pretty stressful situation. And, and she was doing so many people's job. I was just there doing my own job. And she was basically being the, the neonatal doctor, um, the, you know, the second midwife who usually comes to help the healthcare assistant, you know, it was, it was incredible. And I just think that we need to appreciate our team all the time, but so much more than ever at the moment, because everyone is quite burnt out. Everyone's quite stressed and life isn't exactly as it would normally be. And so she was just a really great example of an incredible team player. Oh, absolutely. That's a wonderful story to finish on. So well done, Abby. That sounds fantastic. She sounds like she stayed much calmer than I would have done under those circumstances. But She's a really cool. important point to make as well that, um, you know, to everybody listening out there that we we are doing the role that we would normally do um, and and we enjoy doing it and we're happy to turn up and keep doing it but we do have this added layer of a different way of working at the minute we've got the full PPE on we've got sweat rolling down our faces we've got other sort of pathways of working and maybe not able to have as many people in the room as we normally would do and so we have to evolve and, and collaborate in a different way and it is challenging but we're still here to do it and we enjoy doing it and we are still open for business aren't we? We definitely are. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of What the Midwife Said, hosted by me, Leah Hazard, and produced by Steve Bland of Bambi Media. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dr. Anita Mitra as much as I did. Please get in touch if you have anything to say about our conversation. Please do remember to review and subscribe to the podcast so that other listeners can find us. Share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag What the Midwife Said and tune in next week. 